Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people. And you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Knock that fire down, 19. Copy, Captain. Let's move. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19. All new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Hello and welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. I'm your host, Bill Banton, and along with me on this journey revisiting 80s movies is my co-host, Jason Masick. Greetings and salutations, Jason. What is your damage, Bill? That's right, listeners. We are discussing, with spoilers aplenty, the 1989 cult classic, Heather's. From Cinemarchy Entertainment, distributed by New World Pictures. It stars Winona Ryder, Christian Slater, Shannon Darty, and Kim Walker. Directed by Michael Lehman, this movie is rated R with a running time of 1 hour and 43 minutes. So, what is this movie about? What's on the box? If you grew up in the 1980s and went to your local video store to rent this movie, you would find this description on the back of the VHS box. It is What's on the Box. Take it away, Jason. Life at Westerberg High is a rat race, where getting ahead is more important than getting along. Life here is no game. It's a full-scale war for popularity. And like the saying goes, all's fair in love and war. All's fair, that is, until students start dying. Westerberg's feminine elite quartet is The Heathers, composed of the powerful number one Heather Chandler, the green with envy number two Heather Duke, and the cowardly number three Heather McNamara. Rounding out the foursome is Veronica Sawyer, Winona Ryder, who is so fed up with the Heathers and the entire peer pressure cooker that she starts running with J.D., Christian Slater, a motorcycle-riding newcomer. But what begins as their noble effort to rid Westerberg of its bad apples ends up taking a real toll, and their teen rebellion produces a serious and mounting body count. Heathers, a comedy of bad manners and post-pubescent politics, puts an intriguing new spin on teen turmoil. Heathers. So that was What's on the Box. So Jason, how are we doing? We're doing great, Bill. This podcast is going to be so very. Very, very. 
So this is our first of our back-to-back-to-school episodes where we talk about movies that take place in school. And uh, let's go into earliest memories. What are earliest memories of this movie? Just before we do that, Bill Bant, I've got a question for you because I was just about to announce, here we are 35 years later. This film is listed as a 1988 production, which is the year it was filmed. However, according to the research in multiple places, it was released in March of 1989, specifically March 31st, 1989. So can you answer a question I have right off the bat? Was it 88 or 89, Bill Bant, that this movie came out? Yeah, that was a confusing one to me too, because the movie was released in 89, If you go on IMDb, it says 88. When you watch the end credits of the movie, it's listed as 1988. But the first time it's even screened, I think it's at the Venice Film Festival. And that was in 89 also. So usually I go by when the movie was actually released in theaters. So I still say it's 89 because that's the year you finally could get access to it. I agree. I believe it's a 1989 release. So I, this is interesting. This was a first, according to my research and of the uh, the films that we've done thus far. And this film may then re, or I should say, re-celebrate its 35th anniversary in the beginning of next year. Who knows? We'll see how people decide to celebrate it. Either way, great film. And from now on, Bill, I'm going to call you Big Fun. Big Fun Bill. Thank you. Appreciate that. Big Fun Bill Bant. I'm going to use all four words. <laughs> all right, big, big fun, Bill Band. Let's finally get into the earliest memories. All right, man. What a movie. First and foremost, when I think of this movie, I, I actually do think of Christian Slater. And when he just came out this blazing in this film, it was said that, yeah, he's doing a Jack Nicholson impersonation but it's great, and I believe, as far as I re- could recall, or maybe this is my vague or fuzzy memory, but he was being touted as the next Jack Nicholson, so I remember that comparison and association. And, of course, the great Winona Ryder. She was only 16 when filming this, and she looks great. She's absolutely adorable. Another earliest memory, of course, is the game of croquet. That image just pops up into my head. I haven't played croquet in forever, but I always think of croquet when I think of this movie. And the fact that this is very much a dark uh, high school coming of age comedy. When I think of it, that's all I can think. It just has that dark tone to it. And uh, no question, the earliest memory for me or an earliest memory for me is the vernacular. It's the language. It's the writing of this film. It's the way that our protagonists and all characters speak in this movie. Uh, It was written very specifically, and it was definitely one of those movies that was quoted time and time again on that school playground, as I say often on this podcast. And I can remember even my sister quoting it, but, you know, what's your damage? We'll get into, I'm sure, many of the quotes from this film. It had its moment, whether it was 88 or 89 and and the years following, Uh, and even to this day. So, Those are my earliest memories. Basically, I don't recall seeing this in the theater. I definitely saw it on repeat on cable watch afterward. That's what I've got. Uh, I may come up with something else. Maybe you'll jar some earliest memories for me, Bill Bant. But what do you have for Heathers of 1988 slash 1989? I'm not 100% sure when the first time I saw this movie. It was either senior year of high school or could have been freshman year of college. But it definitely left some memorable impressions. And like you, the first thing, Christian Slater's performance. And I remember watching, like, 
this guy's kind of like a young Jack Nicholson or something. But we do find out that that was intentional. That's what he was trying to do. So he certainly pulled that off. Great lines. There's just so many lines in this movie. I wanted to just knock some of them right off the bat just in case we don't get to all of them. Well, fuck me gently with a chainsaw. Do I look like Mother Teresa? I'd love my dead gay son. Even watching it again now, I laughed out loud. I don't know if I should feel bad about that, but I still found that funny all these years later. Yeah, yeah. Very. What is your damage, Heather? When teenagers complain that they want to be treated like human beings, it's usually because they're being treated like human beings. Will someone tell me why I smoke these damn things? Because you're an idiot. Oh, yeah, that's it. Whether to kill yourself or not is one of the most important decisions a teenager can make. I mean, I could keep going on and on, but then Jason and I might as well just read the whole script off to you guys. So I'll stop right there and plenty more of these quotes coming. Um, Martha Dump Truck having a suicide note pinned to her body and then trying to throw herself in front of a car. That certainly stood out. Um, I learned about cow tipping. I had never heard about that before until watching this movie. JD, uh, Christian Slater, getting his uh, finger blown off by a gun. That was very memorable. And then wrapping it up in that dirty, disgusting, oily rag. Um, the ending itself, the way it ends, I'll hold off on that until later. Just a lot of crazy stuff in this movie, and I'm just looking forward to uh, discussing this one. So that's my earliest memories. Heck yeah, man. Absolutely. I also am glad you brought up some of those moments of violence, graphic violence in this film, because that's definitely an early memory you can't avoid with this film. It's a dark movie. It is a comedy, but it is a black comedy. So yeah, let's get into some initial thoughts for Heather's. Uh, And I will uh, start with our director, Michael Lehman. Here's a little bit of a snapshot of his 80s. He did a short in uh, 1985 called The Beaver Gets a Boner. I just wanted to read that out loud. That's all. Uh, He does Heathers here in 1988. And then he directed Hudson Hawk, the widely panned and now somewhat of a cult classic Hudson Hawk starring Bruce Willis. In 1991, he also directed Airheads a film that I have fond memories of. I haven't watched it in some time, but uh, yeah, he directed Airheads in 94. He did The Truth About Cats and Dogs in 96, 40 Days and 40 Nights in 02. Then uh, he goes on to have a prolific career in TV from The Larry Sanders Show to an episode of The West Wing, The Big C, Nurse Jackie, Dexter, True Blood, Californication, Jessica Jones, and most recently, he's been working on the show Heels. Gotta mention uh, our stars of Heather's first Winona Ryder. Here's her 80s. She did Lucas in 86, Beetlejuice in 88, just before this, Heathers, which also came out in 88 or 89, depending, and then Great Balls of Fire in 89. Other notables from her, of course, are Edward Scissorhands in 90, Dracula in 92, The Age of Innocence in 93, Reality Bites, Little Women, How to Make an American Quilt, and Boys, and The Crucible and Alien Resurrection, Girl Interrupted, just to name a few. But most recently, of course, she's one of the stars of one of the most popular TV shows, Stranger Things, which in itself is a throwback to the 80s. So there you go. And next up, I got to mention, of course, the one and only Christian Slater. And here's a little bit of his 80s. He was in The Great Legend of Billie Jean. I should say The Legend of Billie Jean in 85. He was on 22 episodes of Ryan's Hope, which I forgot about or wasn't aware of at all. I remember that he was in The Name of the Rose in 86. That one had an impact on me, I recall, as a young man. He was on an episode of Crime Story. He was in Tucker the Man in His Dream. Uh, Obviously, this Heathers. He was in Young Guns 2 in 1990. Then The Great Pump Up the Volume, the underrated Pump Up the Volume in 1990. 
Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, Cuffs, Untamed Heart. Oh, that's when I got turned on to Marissa Tomei and never looked back. Uh, he was in one of my cult favorites, I should just say, overall favorite films of all time, and that's True Romance. True Romance. Then Interview with the Vampire. I could just go on and on and on. It's just so, it's just interesting because he was in a lot more notable films than I had recalled until I went over his IMDb list. And if you weren't aware, I mean, he had a real run, but then kind of went under the radar and a bit off the grid, but not really. He has worked consistently, mostly in television and some lesser known films all the way through to present day. So uh, those were uh, our director and stars here of this film. And gosh, some another initial thoughts. I have to say right off the bat, we hear that classic song, que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. And we note our main clique, which is consisted of the, the Heathers, the three Heathers and then the initiate Veronica. So we have our three Heathers whom are color coordinated with their outfits and corresponding croquet balls. So we're introduced to them immediately as the opening credits roll. And then we move into a great setup, which I'll touch upon later uh, with the Heathers taking their lunch pole when we're introduced to all of the players in this film. I just wanted to mention that from the top. Uh, I mentioned how adorable Winona Ryder is in this. Man, she looks great, uh, super young, but I had to note that she's a talented actress. Uh, she pulls it off. She really does play the the teenage role well. I mean, she's a teenager herself, of course, but she's just very, very natural and handling the dialogue. Uh, she does a great job. So Kristen Slater, just killing it from the get. Just the consummate, cool, bad boy confidence personified. I mean... Yeah, maybe he's leaning into it about 10% too much with the Jack Nicholson sort of affectation, but his character is established immediately. You just see him and you are drawn in. He's great. What a great look. Have to note the satirical dark tone of this. Again, the vernacular. Those are the two main the two main signatures of the film. It's what makes this movie stand out. It makes it stand out still. It breaks the rules in places of the the fictional reality from time to time. It kind of plays out metaphors or wish fulfillment sequences as if they're actually happening in real time, whether it be Winona Ryder's head sticking out of the lawn in the very opening credits, or it's Jason Dean firing a gun in the faces of the jocks. But we learn, obviously, he's firing blanks, and that actually does happen within the reality of the fiction. But it just goes to the next level. It's a heightened reality. It's a hyper-reality. Let's just put it that way, an over-the-top satire and comedy. So this film has a real sardonic nature to it. It's crazy how many of the lines came back to me as soon as I heard them. Just like you were saying at the opening there, Big Fun Bill. I was like, oh yeah, all right, here comes this line. Here comes that line. It's so much fun. And like you mentioned, you said most of the the big lines already. Uh, I'll mention a few more, like no way, no day. Veronica, why are you pulling my dick? Same difference. Did you have a brain tumor for breakfast? You know, I mean, it just goes on and on. Hey, here's an initial thought. The Westerberg High School mascot is the Rottweilers. How cool is that? I was like, the the Rottweilers? That's pretty tough. That'd be a good mascot to have. I haven't heard of any school having Rottweilers as their mascot. I'm sure it's out there. I I should have looked that up. I forgot how sexually and violently graphic this film was. It works, again, in the dark satire that it is. But I'm not sure you would see or hear that much of that type of 
language and violence in a coming of age movie today. I could be wrong. There's some new ones coming out that are pretty uh, edgy, which are great. I could be mistaken. I haven't watched a lot of coming of age films recently, to be honest. So, and to be fair, but it surprised me in what in rewatching this uh, today. So uh, I, I don't know. I hope I'm not being naive, but you might hear that kind of language and see that violence in a coming of age streaming television show today. But I don't know. Feature film. Please correct me if I'm wrong. Here's a special shout out to the football phone that belongs to Kurt Kelly, the jock in this film. Got to mention it. I had the Sports Illustrated football phone when I was a kid. This one in the in this movie is a little larger, I believe, and a little different, but just reminded me of that from the 80s. I love the fact that Veronica Sawyer, yes, that is the character played by Winona Ryder. She's wearing a sort of monocle while she's writing in her diary. She has like one half of like reading glasses that she puts over her eye uh, that hangs around her neck. I just love that touch. This film definitely strangely made me want to play croquet again. I always enjoyed that little croquet in the backyard. And uh, getting into my final initial thoughts, is this movie great? I think so. But it comes today with a serious caveat. And, you know, the question could be, is this film appropriate in today's climate? And it's questionable. It should be considered to have, it is considered to have very sensitive content in relation to today's issues, namely bullying, homophobia, teenage suicide, and gun violence in schools. So it's a touchy subject, as it should be. Would I show this to my kids if I had kids, if they were still in school today? Probably not. It simply conjures up too much. But, you know, this is a movie that probably should be only viewed by adults that can truly understand the context. Now, I don't want to get on a pedestal here or soapbox, but, and I'm certainly not one for censorship, but the movie does today in today's social and political climate have, it has to come with a warning. I mean, the movie directly deals with and comments on these very sensitive issues. And that's it. I'll just, I'll leave it there. Now, you know, I'm mentioning it now. I'm not going to bring it up in my complaints because that would be redundant within the context of this podcast, but I felt compelled to make a mention of some of the issues that are again, sensitive today. So overall, I still really enjoy this film, man. From a creative standpoint, it's got a lot to offer, especially if you have a darker sense of humor, in which I can from time to time. I was looking forward to to kind of getting into it and getting into that zone. This film was not made on a whim. It has a creative intention. So it's not reckless in dealing with some of the issues. It's a comedy. And in my opinion, was smartly crafted, well cast, well acted. And it's totally 80s, man. From the hair to the wardrobe to the score by David Newman to the language to the negligent parents, of course. And yes swatches. Oh, yeah. Going back to the 80s. Just great. Those are my initial thoughts, Bill Bant. What have you? Yeah. So my two biggest takeaways from this movie, and the first one you touched on a little bit, is there any way possible this movie could have been released today? And Mm -hmm. I just can't figure out how that could happen. No way, no day. The subjects that you spoke of, I mean, just think of all the school violence that has happened in the last, just even just decade, even overall since this movie. last year. Yeah. That's just something you can't make light of. Even the diversity of the cast. I mean, we only have one minority in this, and that's the anything one scene. That's the yearbook editor. That would be a no-no nowadays. I think because it plays for laughs. If they did this movie now, it would almost be like a serious drama. It would really dive deep into the JD character. It reminds me of uh, the movie, I don't know if you ever saw, we need to talk about Kevin. Oh, I know of it. I don't believe I've seen it, though. That's what 
I think if they tried to make this movie now, that's where they would almost have to go. They'd have to play like serious drama. I don't know if they could play the comedy aspect of it. I would love to meet someone who just watched this movie for the first time just to see what their take on it was. Because mm-hmm. for us, this movie is certainly a sign of the times. Love the dialogue in this movie. I just love the way they dressed in this movie. Of course, they do all your stereotypical classifications of the jocks and the geeks and the stoners and your popular kids. But I like how they interplay all of them throughout the movie. But the whole time I'm like, there's no way this movie kind of got released today. No studio would have been like, oh, yeah, well, let's do this. They would have had to change this whole thing around. The performances by Winona Ryder and Christian Slater are really what carry this movie. They're both great in this. Totally agree. I couldn't believe that Winona was only 15 when she started. They started filming this and was only 16 by the time it was completed. Just thought for some reason she was older. Mm -hmm. She plays it off great. But I think the second thing that I really took away from this movie and one of these things, I love high school movies because I did not get to experience high school life like this. I went to an all boys high school so i live vicariously through these movies and i think what i liked about this movie is usually when we have these high school movies not all of them though but usually your popular group usually focuses on the guys and usually when it's the guys that are the the group the reason that they're popular is because they're strong they're just physically stronger than anyone else and that's what has them rise to success that's why everybody looks up to them they're the star athletes. They can beat the crap out of you if you cause problems. So that's why they run the school. But and then we're looking at the popular girls. And they're popular because they're beautiful. And they psychologically destroy anyone else that gets in their way. And there's a great quote from, I'll just say Heather One, who says, They all want me as a friend or a fuck. I'm worshipped at Westburg and I'm only a junior. And she's right. She's a very attractive woman. No one likes her, though. But... She knows how to use her looks and her smarts. I mean, she is smart to control everyone in that school. And I thought that was interesting seeing the girl version of the popular clique. I didn't have a girl popular clique in my school. So watching this was fascinating to me the first time I saw it because this was just something I didn't see. And then just the whole dynamics of the other three in this group don't like the most popular girl, but they realize... We need to stay with her or else who knows where we're going to be. So that was interesting, too. It's you have friends only because you need to keep your status, not because she's an actually true friend. Like if I was in a situation, Heather one was a Heather Chandler would not be my first call. If I was in a pinch, I would call Veronica or maybe one of the other two Heathers. But I look up to Heather Chandler for everything. She's the one that tells me what to do in school. But I don't really consider her a friend. She's just a status symbol for me, for for me to stay where I'm at. Watching that, because I'm like, is it really that way? I don't know. You know, like I said, on on the guy's side, you usually don't see that. They're just, hey, we're all on the team together. We're all buds. But we never really saw a movie where the guy's like, oh, I hate blah, blah, blah. He's in charge. You see it here in Heather's. The other two Heather's of Veronica just wish Heather Chandler was gone and done. And I'll get into it later. They are happy when that happens. So that was like the two biggest uh, takeaways from me. Is there any way possible this movie could have came out today and clicks and just how that works in schools? Fascinating stuff. Well, wonderful stuff. Big fun, Bill Bant, because I'll touch on just a couple other things. Just expand on what you were saying, because, yeah, I do not believe this film could be made in this style or genre today. 
because the issues are ever present and too close to the surface emotionally, you know, and otherwise. I mean, it's just a subject that needs to be broached with all kinds of sensitivity because these issues have just had immensely tragic consequences and profoundly tragic consequences. So yeah, and the thing about when you talk about the clicks, because I wanted to mention that too, and I forgot to write it down, is this film is definitely not just a satirical black comedy, but it's a social commentary within that, a commentary on the society within high school. And if you look at it that way, it makes sense because you're looking at the power click, right? Where it's all about getting validation from your peers and being the popular kid in school. And and there is a uh, sort of a power ranking within school and it's not fair. It's unfortunate. And these three Heathers that form the most powerful clique in school are bullies and they're demeaning and they're mean and they're cruel. And that's how they retain their power. And it's a real thing that happens in schools, unfortunately, to this day. And it seems to just be the the way of things, unfortunately. So there is that commentary. And in this version, which takes place in 1988 or 89, that's, again, the way it was then. And they were able to get away with this type of commentary within the genre or category of satirical comedy, presenting it in this sort of package, that type of commentary. But you're right. I agree completely. It would be presented in a different uh, style today. My belief, in my opinion, is that the creatives behind this film had the right intentions in pointing out the evils of a power click or the click situation in general and or the bullying, the suicide, the gun violence, etc., in pointing out how there's such evils that lie within or underneath in order to combat those evils, unfortunately, it's fighting with fire, but it's fighting an evil with an even darker, uh, more violent evil, which is not the answer. It's just the framework here is 1988 comedy. That's just so you kind of have to look at it through that lens. The subjects could still say the same, but it just can't be presented the way it was back then. Right. We totally had to put it in a different perspective. And it's crazy, too, because, you know, my kids just went back to school. Uh, my daughter just started uh, middle school. It's not even into her second week. And... The local high school, we already heard after the first day, there was a stabbing outside of the school. It didn't happen in the school, but it happened right outside the school. We've already heard about a ton of fights that are happening in the middle school. And it's, we're not even two weeks in. What the hell are these kids fighting about already? It's just crazy how this just stuff keeps just happening over and over again. And what can we do to stop it? There's just been no solutions because we've gotten numb to the point where we hear about these school tragedies over and over again. And then there's the uproar. And then let's try to think of solutions. And then nothing happens. And then we hear about another tragedy at a school. It's just a vicious cycle that we're just, I'm sure all of us are tired of. But what, what are we going to do? When are we going to try to make change? And uh, we're just not. And in a way, it's kind of weird because this is a very satirical view of all that before this kind of happened. Yeah, well said, Bill Bant, well said. And uh, I think we've covered it to this point. We are sensitive to it and we uh, certainly take it very seriously. But I think we'll wrap up that commentary on this film right there, if you're okay with that, Bill Bant. Yeah. We'll we'll just kind of talk about this movie in the context of its release, the time it was released in its 
impact on us then and how we look at it as just strictly as a, a movie in a, a dark comedy. Yeah, let's get into it. So let's go on to favorite scenes or moments. What are some of our favorite scenes and moments from Heathers? Yeah, absolutely. So my first favorite scene, Bill Bant, big fun Bill Bant. You know I'm a fan of a good setup, so I'm calling this the high school calf setup scene. They call it the calf. It's not the, the cafeteria. It's the calf. That's how they talk in this movie. So I just love it. We um, had our opening credit sequence, but it moves right into this scene within the high school cafeteria at lunch period. And the Heathers have scooped up Veronica Sawyer, played by Winona Ryder, as mentioned. And Veronica, we learn quickly, is basically the initiate. She's being initiated into this clique, the Heathers, the power clique of the school. And we get kind of a walk and talk throughout the cafeteria again during lunch period. And we get to see all the players, all the different cliques within the school, as Bill had mentioned earlier. We're introduced to the popular clique, this being the Heathers number one, number two, and number three. That's Heather Chandler, Heather Duke, and Heather McNamara. And clearly, Heather number one is a bitch. And she's demeaning, and she's just mean. And she gives the orders. She's in charge. She's at this point, uh, written a letter, which is to be forged in Kurt Kelly's handwriting. Kurt Kelly is one of the big jocks, one of the football players at Westerberg High. And for whatever reason, because Heather is cruel, she decided to write a letter as if it were Kurt Ke uh, Kelly's writing. And she has Veronica, who is uh, trying to prove her worth to become a Heather. Uh, she has Veronica, who happens to be talented in the way of forging. Uh, write this letter in Kurt Kelly's handwriting. So the purpose of this is to pass along this letter, which is supposed to be written by Kurt Kelly, to Martha Dumptruck Dunstock. They've given the nickname to this poor girl. Her name is actually Martha Dunstock, but they nicknamed her Martha Dumptruck. She's a little bit overweight. And they're going to play this cruel trick on her passing this letter to Martha. And then Martha is supposed to believe that it was given to her, written by Kurt Kelly, the jock, as if he is in love with her and has some sort of passionate feelings for her. And so we see that happen. And Veronica is doing this. She writes it in his handwriting uh, begrudgingly. And then it moves into... Well, we do see one of the Heathers actually put the note onto Martha Dumtruck's food tray, and unknowingly, Martha takes that to her table to eat by herself in the corner. And then in the meantime, we get into the walk and talk because Heather number one has written her lunchtime poll question. And the question of the day is, and I'm paraphrasing, if you win the sweepstakes for $5 million, but all of a sudden the aliens invade and they take over the world and are going to destroy it in two days, what do you do with the money? How are you going to spend it? So she's walking around with the other Heathers to ask this question of everyone, of all the different cliques. And it's a great idea and a great device to get us to meet all the characters. So they walk around and they go to the dumb jocks, which are Kurt and Ram, who we've seen briefly at this point. They are the typical jocks that just have sex in football, mainly sex, on their minds. And then uh, through the walk and talk, we do meet Betty Finn, 
who was Veronica's best friend from when they were younger. But now, of course, they are in separate groups and Veronica doesn't get to talk to her that often since she's devoted to the Heathers at this point. Uh, we meet the nerds who are running a foodless fundraiser. They're trying to get people to donate food or funds, whatever money they can to feed the hungry. It's great. We meet all the players. And then, of course, who's that in the corner? That's Jason Dean, a.k.a. JD, a.k.a. Christian Slater. There he is kind of brooding in the corner, sitting with his tray that he's barely touching. He's just in the corner looking cool in his black overcoat, thick black hair, his one earring and his cool scowl, his furrowed brow. And he's just watching. He's just watching the scene, observing, surveying, possibly plotting. We don't know. But he's got his eyes on Veronica. We know that much. Eventually, after they go uh, around the cafeteria, and they even go out into the parking lot, they're asking everybody this this, uh, lunchtime poll question. They make their way back inside, and it seems to be a very long lunch period, actually. (laughs) And Veronica ends up walking right over to Jason Dean, J.D., and starts flirting with him a little bit. And she asks him the poll question. You know, what do you do with $5 million if the aliens have invaded and are going to blow up the world in two days? And he's like, well, I'd take a boat out into the middle of the lake with a bottle of tequila. And he's just way, way too cool. And of course, then the jocks, a little bit jealous, looking on from a distance, see Veronica flirting with JD and vice versa. Well, they decide to give JD their own welcome because we understand at this point that JD is the newcomer in school. He's just moved into the town here, which is Sherwood, Ohio. That's where our film takes place, as well as Westerberg High. And Kurt and Ram approach JD, and being the typical jocks, they use a gay slur, and they stick their fingers in his food, trying to intimidate him. And then JD says, oh yeah, well, uh, it seems like uh, there's an open door policy for assholes at this school. And they're like, what did you say to me? JD stands up and promptly pulls out a giant black revolver and shoots them both in the face. That's what we're to believe. And it's sudden and it's jarring. It's almost a bit of wish fulfillment in the way, I should say it is outright wish fulfillment in the way that the dickhead asshole jocks that are Ram and Kurt get their comeuppance. You know, we want to see them get what's coming to them. But we learn quickly afterward in a little game of croquet that when the Heathers and Veronica are discussing what had happened at the lunchtime with JD and the jocks that JD was firing blanks out of the gun. They were not real bullets, so nobody technically got hurt. But it's a hell of a way to open this movie. It's a great way to be introduced to the characters. It's uh, The characters and relationships are clearly established. We understand the power rankings and hierarchy here, that the Heathers are bitches, and they're very, very condescending to not only everyone else, but to one another in the way they treat Veronica as they're trying to initiate her and how they treat Martha Dumbtruck Dunstock, which is just awful. It's hard to watch I have to admit, and obviously we meet the jocks, we meet the nerds. I'm just being redundant at this point, but it's a great ending to the scene with the newcomer just standing up to the bullies, literally and figuratively, and just, oh boy, we are off to the races. This movie is not holding back. It's a comedy, but it's on the darker side. Yeah, great call, Jason. Um, I kind of have this as my one of my favorite scenes also, more on the intro of JD's character, Christian Slater, everything you need to know about the school takes place in the cafeteria. So you know who the popular kids are, you know who the people that are pseudo popular who hate the ultra click, 
you have our geek nerds. Um, there's a funny moment when Heather looks at one of them and he does the spit take with this milk and he's all excited, like, Heather one looked at me. So that's <laughs> kind of funny. Moment, yeah. But I think what's great, too, because when you get into this cafeteria scene and you meet J.D., Christian Slater, you know right away that he's the new kid in school. You can just tell right away by the, the way Veronica reacts to him that he's new, that he hasn't been there before. And then she goes up to talk to him because there's this poll question that they do. And it's a ridiculous poll question. Heather's been the one that's been asking the question to everybody in the school. But Veronica is the one that goes over to JD to ask this question because they've caught each other's eye. And as they've been walking through the school asking the question, she keeps staring at him. So you, sh you can see there's already an instant attraction among the two of them. And we don't really know anything about JD, except he's sitting in the corner of the cafeteria. He looks pretty cool. He's got the trench coat jacket, got the nice black wavy hair. All we know at this point is what his name is. And then it goes into when Veronica is speaking to JD, our jocks see that this is going on and don't like that for some reason. I don't know why, but at first they want to kick the shit out of them, but hey, they're seniors. They don't do that anymore. And they go over to have a little talking with JD. Uh, some of the lines you just can't repeat uh, nowadays because they use some uh, gay slurs that we do not like. And then that's when JD pulls out his gun and proceeds to fake blow them away. So I really did like JD's intro and the scene. All right, this guy is very interesting. I want to know what he's all about. And just learning the dynamics of everyone at that school already and all who our main players are going to be at some point. We meet Veronica's old best friend who she unfortunately has to let go in order to become popular with the click, uh, which is kind of funny because it's Betty and Veronica. And that's a, I'm just stepping on some trivia there. So if you're a fan of Archie comics, you know who the main two ladies in that comic are, but Betty and Veronica. I actually think Betty is probably the cutest of all the, the women in the cast. Mm. I'm like, if she did herself up, she would have been my prom date for sure. Make an argument. I could see that. You know, the big glasses. I'm like, I know, I know you're hiding how pretty you are underneath, but all well and good. Poor Martha Dump Truck. I shouldn't even say Martha Dump Truck. Just poor Martha. That is like the cruelest prank that they could play. And then just the reaction of the jocks when she takes over that letter and they just laugh in her face. Uh, uh, that's soul crushing moment. I don't know if I felt that way when I was a kid or when I saw this the first time, but now just watching, I'm just like, Oh man, that's just so rough. It's you cringe just, worthy. Exactly. It's totally just the cringe. Absolutely. Just the fact when she gets up to store, just like, go sit back down, go sit back down. There's no way you can believe that. There's no way you can believe that, but you want to believe it. So there's a lot of characterization in that opening scene. And it's, I mean, it's, it's long per se. It's, it's a good 10 minutes, I think. Right. Don't you think it's, yeah, it's pretty long. Probably close to, yeah, sure. You certainly get a lot of information of how the inner workings of the school are a good intro. So yeah, definitely a good call. If you're a writer, that's something you like to see. Yeah. It's just, everything is made so clear and you have an emotional investment. If there's no, you know, if there, if you're looking for stakes from the get here, that's where it is. It's more like, oh, wow, we know who the bad guys are here. And we know it's like, okay, I'm rooting for Veronica and JD immediately. And I'm rooting against the Heathers and the Jocks. I mean, it's just like, okay, the division is clear. We know who to root for. But um, it's a testament, this opening scene also to, as we've mentioned, the maturity of Winona Ryder as an actress and Christian Slater, because it's in, I think about the audition process from an actor's perspective, and we'll get into it a little bit in the trivia as to other people that auditioned for the role or roles, but 
if they don't look the part for some reason, I could see these two actors, that being Ryder and Slater, going into a casting office. And once they start becoming the character, it's just clear. They just own it. There's an ownership there. I mean, when you see Christian Slater right from the beginning, as soon as you see him, you're like, oh, this guy knows who this character is. It's written all over his face. It's just so clear. It's great stuff. It's a, It's fun to watch. Yeah, that's a great comment. He knows who he is as a character right away. It just comes across, and he just plays it perfectly. So good call. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what's your first favorite scene, Bill Bant? Well, technically, it's my second, because my first one right, is right. the cafeteria. So the second one is, and we'll have to explain where we are at this point in the movie, is Heather Chandler's funeral. So at this point in the movie, Heather 1 and Veronica have gone to a college party. Basically, Heather has brought Veronica along because there's a guy that she's dating, Heather's dating, at the college. And the boyfriend has a friend, and the friend's hoping he has an easy hookup to get laid. So Veronica is almost like a offering so that Heather will stay cool within this college atmosphere party. Obviously, it doesn't go well. Veronica doesn't want to have anything to do with this guy. She drinks too much, throws up. Her and Heather have a fight outside the party, and Veronica goes home upset, wishing that she could kill Heather, but realizing if she does, her social status is over, and that she's going to have to go back and kiss Veronica's ass. In the meantime, JD has appeared in Veronica's bedroom, and he pretty much tells Veronica he's not too appreciative of Veronica's friends and thinks all the Heathers are bitches and they should get their comeuppance. And Veronica explains she can't do that and she's going to go kiss Heather's ass. I'm going to interject really quick here, big fun Bill Bant, and just let you know, spoiler, that my second favorite scene is what I'm calling Heather Chandler Goes Down. Okay, so JD and Veronica go to Heather's house. And let's just say it doesn't turn out very well for Heather, which hence means Heather has a funeral. And Jason will explain how all that happened, okay? So we're at the funeral, and uh, we got Otto as the priest. Awesome. Little Beetlejuice connection there. Yeah, it's great. It's great to see him, yeah. So we're at the funeral, and they have Heather up in the front, and she's laid out in the casket, and she's all in a beautiful dress, and it's open. It's Glenn Shattuck, who plays Father Ripper, who's doing the proceedings. And if you don't know who that is, that's... Otto from Beetlejuice. So after he's finished, we have students come up to Heather to kind of do like a last thoughts. So they come and they sit, then kneel beside her and we hear all these inner monologues. So we don't hear them say this. This is all in their head. And it's funny, yet it's terrible because you have both remaining Heathers go up. Veronica goes up and then we have one of the jocks goes up and then one of the, like the nerdy student goes up to speak. And I'm going to read some of the stuff that they said verbatim what, what I can read. So we have uh, Heather Duke go up, which is uh, Shen Doherty. And she says, and this is all in our heads, so everyone else in the church cannot hear this. I prayed for the death of Heather Chandler many times, and I felt bad every time. I did it, but I kept doing it anyway. Now I knew you understood everything. Praise Jesus, hallelujah. And when she's saying praise Jesus, she literally starts smiling. And everybody can see that she's smiling but don't know what she's smiling about. There you go. See, she's wishing that Heather had actually died. So we have Peter go up, who's in the cafeteria. He's trying to do the the fundraiser for the food. And he's like the active student. He's the one that's in all the clubs and doing, he's one mm-hmm. of those, you know, he's in the yearbook. He's all that kind of stuff. And he goes, 
Dear Lord, please make sure this never happens to me because I don't think I could handle suicide. Fast early acceptance into an Ivy League school and please let it be Harvard. Amen. So here you go. You have a student dead in front of you and you're praying to go to school. So it just, it just shows where our priorities are. But then we have Bram, the jock, and I can't exactly repeat what he said. So I'll just sum it up this way. And he's just basically upset at God that someone so hot was killed. And he kind of says like this half-hearted prayer and something about forgiving sinners because he's a sinner and makes a joke about it. He's like, I'm only joking, God. Just an idiot. Um, Then we have Veronica and she goes up and she says, hi, I'm sorry. Technically, I did not kill Heather Chandler, but hey, who am I trying to kid, right? I just want my high school to be a nicer place. Amen. Did that sound bitchy? So it's funny, but it's so wrong. Yeah. I did enjoy it. So yeah, that's one of my favorite scenes and moments from the movie. Oh, it's great. It's totally irreverent. It's completely irreverent. That's why it's great. This film takes some chances. It takes some risks because if the performers don't do their job, if it's not shot in a certain way, if you don't have Otto from Beetlejuice as the priest, it's lit in a certain way that it is very clear that this is a satire. This is a comedy. Man, it's re- like you said, it's really wrong. And if it were presented in a different way, it would be taken in a very bad way. So it's hilarious. Well done, my friend. Well, I'm glad you brought this up because when you are hearing their inner monologues, as you said, uh, what they say is just really funny. And part of it is deep down in the darker parts of ourselves, we can relate. We have these thoughts, as wrong as they may be. We're all flawed. Now, n- maybe not to the extreme of the thoughts that they're having in these in this moment regarding the death of their the sudden death of their uh, best so-called best friend or dear friend. But yeah, it's funny. It works. It works within the context of the film. And thank you. And I apologize for having interrupted you in the middle of this, but thanks for glossing over the, the actual death sequence of Heather number one, Heather Chandler. So, uh, because that was my next favorite scene. No, I'm glad you're covering it because it was, uh, it was on my list and I was like, I got to cut something off. And I'm like, please, Jason, please, Jason, take this one. Absolutely. There's a sequence of good stuff here. It's a series of scenes that is just all good. I have to say like the first half of this film is so solid. Not that the second half isn't, but it's just, it cooks. You get really into it. So yeah, I'm just calling it Heather Chandler goes down or corn nuts. So we know that Veronica Sawyer is trying to ingratiate herself to the Heathers and get into the clique. And Heather number one takes her to the Remington University party, uh, where Veronica is humiliated and Heather is humiliated and threatens to kick Veronica out before she's even in. And as Bill said, Veronica goes home and she's dejected and upset. And Jason Dean shows up to save the night and they end up making sweet, sweet love down by the croquet set in the backyard. Uh, that happened quickly, but they were clearly attracted to each other. We, that was established, at least. And yes, Veronica mentions her hatred for Heather and wanting to make her puke, just like she had puked earlier at the Remington party. So the next morning, the two of them, J.D. and Veronica, Well, they head over to Heather's house and they just help themselves into Heather's home and kitchen while she's asleep in her bedroom. And again, where are the parents? 
We don't know. This is an 80s movie. That means there are negligent absentee parents. We accept that. We understand that. So they're uh, milling about in Heather's kitchen, and Veronica comes up with the idea for a disgusting drink in order to incite Heather's puking, hopefully, (laughs) to get back at her. And she says the idea of mixing orange juice and milk together, which does sound pretty freaking gross. Well, let's just say J.D., He's got other ideas. And so he pulls a mug from, I should say, he first pulls a clear glass from the cabinet and begins to pour drain cleaner, a very clearly blue colored liquid of drain cleaner into the glass. And Veronica's like, don't be a dick. That would kill her. And when she says that to JD, credit again to Christian Slater. He has this look on his face, which is like, He's not giving it all away, but he kind of does this tiny little smirk and a little nod. And you're like, oh, this guy's got some alternative motives here and maybe an agenda. But he kind of acquiesces to Veronica as she makes her own drink concoction and she places her mug next to his. So at this point, they've poured their drinks into actual coffee mugs so that they're not clear. They're like ceramic coffee mugs, so it's not a clear glass so that... Obviously, Heather wouldn't be able to see what she was drinking. In this moment, Veronica kisses JD and, well, oops, she grabs the wrong mug. She grabs the mug that has the blue drain cleaner in it. And they proceed into Heather's room where she is looking beautiful and perfect as she's in her slumber, no matter how hungover she may be. And they approach her and wake her up and somehow... JD now has the mug in his hand with the drain cleaner in it and tempts Heather to take a drink from it. But of course, she doesn't fall prey immediately to what she thinks is a ruse. But then, of course, it kind of gets put back on her and she uh, takes the bait, grabs the mug from JD and pounds it. She just puts it to her lips and chugs it. It's like, oh, no, I thought she was going to sip from it. I forgot she just chugs that drain cleaner and... Immediately, she's got the blue stain on her lips and on her tongue, and she starts choking. She puts her hands to her neck, takes a few steps forward, and just utters the words, Corn nuts. Because cut to a scene earlier before they had gone to the Remington party, that being Heather and Veronica, uh, she wanted corn nuts from the Snappy Snack Shack. So I believe is thinking maybe she's choking on the corn nuts she had previous, or maybe it was food poisoning that she'd been poisoned by the corn nuts. I'm not sure. It seems a little random, but it's kind of funny that those are her last words. As then immediately Heather slams through the glass coffee table in a room. She just falls face first and shatters the glass coffee table. It's an awesome stunt. It's really hardcore and it's jarring. Just like, oh, damn, she is down and she is dead. Now, Jason Dean, JD and Veronica, they panic for a moment. They're like, holy shit, we just killed her. And what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? Well, they grab a piece of paper and use take advantage of Veronica's forging techniques and decide to forge a suicide letter in Heather's handwriting, making it seem as if Heather was... You know, she was a bitch because she was covering a more sensitive, vulnerable side, and she had feelings too. 
And when Veronica's writing the suicide note, she actually uses the word myriad, which is just there's a little fun back and forth between Veronica and JD about the word myriad. Should we use the word myriad because she spelled it wrong on an earlier like vocabulary test of some sort? Anyway, JD convinces Veronica to, yes, write the word myriad in the suicide note. And uh, because she's going to want to cash in on as many 50 cent words as possible. (laughs) It's just so dark. And finally, J.D. adds his final touch to the suicide note saying, here, write this. I die knowing no one ever knew the real me. And Veronica responds by saying, that's good. Have you done this before? And J.D. just kind of has this look on his face and it cuts away real quick. It's a great death scene and it's it sets up the rest of the movie because now we know that oof, what are J.D.'s intentions here? I mean, you could call it like the inciting incident for the rest of the movie because it's, it is basically a catalyst for things to come. Also, how is this relationship between JD and Veronica going to work? Are they going to bond over this? Are they going to be broken up over this? How are they going to live with this, etc.? But we have to remember this is a satire and it's an over-the-top comedy. So well-acted and your mind is racing and spinning while you're watching it going, how are they going to get away with this and get through this? And what's going to happen next? Enjoyed that scene. Yeah. I think my favorite moment from that scene is them trying to draft the letter and having the argument of using certain words and mm-hmm. Jane, like, yeah, that's why she should because then it would show that's part of her issue. And then we cut to the next scene of the staff. And then the, of course the teacher's like, Oh, I loved how she used the use of myriad in her suicide note. And you're like, Oh my God. But yeah, that is a good scene. And just the stunt work in that of going through the glass that is tough. So good call on that one. It rivals Sean Young going through the glass table in No Way Out. Oh, that's true. Ooh, which one's better? Uh, I mean, right? That's a tough one. That's a tough one. We should save it. Save it for additional questions. You can ponder it. Think about it. Uh-huh. But yeah, I thought you you were going to say your favorite moment from this scene is when they're trying to to drum up phlegm globbers to put into the disgusting drink to feed to Heather. <laughs> Oh, yeah. And, and right away, she knows. Like, oh, yeah. What you, what you try to put in here? Fled globbers? Nice try. <laughs> I love the language. The oh. great. What's your next scene or moment, Bill Bant? I think my moment would just have to be just the ending, just kind of how it ends. And I will get into in Facts and Trivia that there was many additional endings to this movie. I have this with, too, though. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Some of them, uh, the additional endings, I, I did kind of like what they were going to come up with. But I think this one does work. And I'm just talking about the very, very end. That's exactly what I wrote. Okay. So what ends up happening is JD blackmails Heather Heather Duke to get signatures on this petition because JD has pictures of Heather with Martha when they were youngsters. And he'll release it to the school. And Heather Duke has now taken control of the school. So, of course... She's finally top dog. She doesn't want that reign to end so quickly. So Heather goes around getting all these signatures and telling people different things in order for them to sign the petition. Well, you find out that the petition is really a mass suicide note and JD is going to blow up the school at the school pep rally. And it'll be this big statement, blah, 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 blah. And Veronica finds out about this. She's able to stop him from blowing up the school. And she thinks that she kills him. And she leaves the school all beat up, bloodied, and just exasperated, but just happy that she was able to save the school. Well, not so fast. Out comes JD with the bomb now strapped to him. And he walks down the stairs and 
basically just blows himself up. I just thought that was a, a cool moment. It's like, I got to feed it, but I'm still going to go out on my terms. But then you find out too, JD has a pretty sad backstory, which kind of explains some of who he is. He lives with his dad. The relationship between him and his dad is awful. It's his dad comes home and they speak opposite. So JD will say the dad lines while the dad will say JD's lines. They do a role reversal all the time. And you come to find out later that his dad's like in real estate, but if he wants certain property, he'll do illegal things to get that property. And in one of those instances, he wanted this land that where this library was, and he was going to blow it up so he could get the land. And JD's mother knew about this, and she ran into the library and dies in the explosion. So, yeah, it explains why he's kind of messed up. So at least you get a little background of why JD is the way he is. He's just very jaded view of the world. And that's how he got the explosives, too, from uh, his dad, who does this to blow up buildings and stuff. So I like the ending, how JD just like, you know what? I just got to end it. But there's like a funny bit, too, because Veronica pulls out a cigarette and the explosion itself is able to light the cigarette in her yeah. mouth. And she pulls a quick couple of puffs on it and then goes in to the school and finally shows, you know what? I'm going to be top dog and we're going to run the school right. We're all going to be nice to each other. But nice to see what would happen afterwards. Yeah. JD doing himself in. I thought it was kind of a cool moment. It's a great ending. I don't have too much to end, but I will expand on the ending because I'll take it just bit past it when Veronica actually re-enters the school after JD blows himself up. Uh, so, I mean, it's totally ridiculous. But yeah, that moment when Veronica actually exits the school during the pep rally and she goes onto the front stairs of the school and she thinks she's thwarted JD's efforts and she's just all beaten up and battered from her fight with JD in the boiler room. She's all bloodied her face. She's got blood on her face. She's got dirt and grime all over her face. Her hair is a mess and she's just had a day. And then suddenly JD comes out the front doors kind of stumbling and he's all still calm and cool. It's just great. And just walks up to her in a very non-threatening fashion as if, yes, like you said, well, as you said, uh, Bill Bant, that he knows he's defeated, but he's just not done yet. And he walks right up to her. And he's like, you fucked me up pretty bad because she shot him three times. She blew his finger off and then shot him at least twice. And now he's stumbling out. He's pretty much going to die regardless. And he just looks at her and goes, with total respect, says, you got power. It's great. And then, yeah, reveals the bomb that he's strapped to himself, walks away, putting some distance between himself and her in the school, and has that line as saying that, yeah, he was going to do away with the school, and but didn't work. So now that you're dead, what are you going to do with your life? It's just kind of a funny line. And then the bomb that he has strapped to his chest doesn't go off at first. He has to tap it to keep the yeah. timer rolling down, going down. So when he says that line, now what you're dead, uh, now that you're dead, what are you going to do with your life? And she just pulls out the cigarette. It's just great. And then of course there's the explosion. And like you said, and she this lights the cigarette, the explosion lights the cigarette supposedly. And she just keeps smoking the cigarette and walks back into the school through the hallway. Just now she's covered in soot, basically. It just, you know, from the explosion, just it's all the, the smoke. It's great because no one seems to notice her at all in her current condition. They're too busy evacuating after hearing the explosion. 
And the only one that does notice her is Heather Duke, Shannon Doherty. And she goes, Veronica, you look like hell. She says, yeah, I just got back. Great line. <laughs> and then she promptly takes Heather's red scrunchie or scarf like that was wrapped in her hair, which once belonged to the other head Heather, Heather number one. She takes that red scrunchie from Heather Duke and goes, Heather, my love, there's a new sheriff in town. And she just walks away from the dejected Heather, who is now lost and now basically demoted. And Veronica then walks up to make peace with Martha, Martha Dunstock, not dump truck, Martha Dunstock, and says, hey, I just lost my prom date. <laughs> what do you say instead of going to the prom, we, uh, we get some new releases, which was just great because it just made me think of Blockbuster immediately. I was like, yeah, let's go to Blockbuster, get some new releases, get some popcorn. And Martha just smiles and says, yeah, that sounds great. I'm paraphrasing, but that's the gist of it. It's a great ending. It's cool. It's funny. It's weird. It's totally over the top and totally wrong and violent. And you're just like, what is this movie? But what did I just watch? Great finale. Good stuff. Anything else you want to talk about for scenes or moments? I was just going to give a shout out. You had mentioned this briefly to uh, the moments. Anything with the parents. Hilarious. Hilarious to me. Anything with the parents because they're negligent and they're ignorant and they're just kind of pretending to be role models and they have no idea what they're talking about. And of course, it's usually, you know, we watch these coming of age movies knowing a lot of it's from the perspective of the teenager. Yeah. Like you said, when you have Veronica's dad sitting there going, I don't know why I read these spy novels. And Veronica goes, because you're an idiot. It's like, oh yeah, that's it. With a straight face. Yep. <laughs> and then there's a callback to it later when I believe, what was he, what's he doing in the, oh, he's smoking a cigarette. He's like, I don't know why I smoke these things. Because you're an idiot. Oh, yeah. That's it. <laughs> it's just great. And then, of course, the other parent being Big Bud Dean, Jason Dean's dad that you touched upon, who is a bad dude and runs the construction company and the demolition operations. Yeah, I mean, he's weird and like has violent tendencies and has a dark nature to him. And that whole dynamic between Big Bud Dean and his son Jason is weird with the role reversal. They're talking to each other as if, the dad is the son and the son is the dad. And it's, again, dark comedy going, what is this relationship? It's so wild. And you kind of see it from Veronica's eyes as she's sitting on the couch going, I don't understand what's going on here, but this is not healthy. <laughs> so any moments, yeah, involving the parents in this movie are, are pretty wild and pretty funny. Yes. And we know that Veronica's parents love the pate. Right. <laughs> Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. All right, so that takes us to Swiss Cheese and Complaints Apartments. And why do we call it Swiss Cheese? Because although this movie is delicious, it does have croquet hoops. Yes, if it doesn't have those croquet hoops, we just file a complaint with the Complaints Apartment. Jason, do you have anything for Swiss Cheese or Complaints? Uh, yeah, it's interesting. Starting off, with this was initially a complaint, but then as I was writing it, I was going, oh, this is actually a compliment to the film. So 
I was thinking the Remington, Remington University party seems to take place in a rundown apartment in a seedy part of town. And it's just funny because I'm like, you think, oh, we're going to a Remington University party as because the Heather number one is taking it's kind of a test for Veronica. Like you have to come and fit in and flirt with these older college guys. And that means then you'll be part, you know, really part of the cool clique if you're accepted by college guys. And Veronica doesn't want to be there, but I wouldn't want to be there either because I'm going, wait a minute, these cool college guys, this looks like a shitty dorm room. <laughs> it's just kind of ragtag and the windows are run to, I, I, all about it. Like the set dressing just looks terrible and they go out into the alley and there's just trash cans and stuff. And I'm like, oh, but the idea here for this movie is everything's flipped on its head in a way and over the top. So it's going against a lot of the tropes or either again, like I mentioned earlier, hyper reality kind of hyper realizing this world of the coming of age, high school comedy. So this complaint turned into a compliment. I'm like, Oh, that's smart to actually make what you would believe to be like a high class university party on campus, like in a cool house of some kind is actually just a shitty house in a bad part of town kind of thing. I thought it was kind of cool. So complaint turned compliment. There you go. So yeah, I have a pseudo, it might be a complaint, it might be Swiss cheese. This has to be the dumbest police force in <laughs> the world. Thank you, Bill, man. Absolutely. Totally agree. Because, okay, just think about the first murder with Heather One, Heather Chandler. They leave so much forensic evidence at that scene any boob detective would have figured something out. They got their fingerprints all over the suicide note. They could do fingerprinting back then. I literally wrote the same thing. Yeah. Hands down. Easily. Like maybe they could have wiped off other stuff there, but we know Veronica is very good with matching people's handwriting, but her hands are all over that paper. This is the fact that they rule the suicide so easily. And it's like, no, this is under investigation. Apparent suicide. I, I, I wrote the same thing down. Yeah. And then when you talk about Ram and Kurt, that they shoot each other, all you got to do is look at their hands with the gun. I mean, this is probably watching too much CSI, but they would have known right away, like, there's no way these two fired the guns. There's no kind of burn mark on their hand or gunpowder residue. They would have figured that out right away. Police department sucks there. Just sucks. I completely agree. And to a little bit of the credit of the, the film in their portrayal of the cops we do see, we see they are bumbling idiots. Yes. But they do paint them in a certain light but it is way over the top you really have to go with it it's part of the suspension of disbelief that the, just the cops are also negligent as the parents are in Hades movies and they just do no forensic work it's one of the major holes even in one of my favorite scenes yes in uh, Heather number one's death and it's not just I mean Veronica's fingerprints are all over the papers all over the pen both of their fingerprints are all over the glasses and mugs and all over the kitchen and on the refrigerator door and on anything she touched in the refrigerator, like the carton of milk, the carton, the orange juice, they've left all traces. It's they're all over it. And yes, we've watched too much CSI. <laughs> That's a given. Right. And yes, they d maybe didn't have DNA evidence back then, but whatever, they have the ability to take fingerprints. And so it's just kind of like, wait a minute. The whole, that could be considered a, a matter of Swiss cheese in this film really is kind of, when you're talking about death, because we take it seriously, is that 
well, what are the repercussions? You know, are they going to jail? What's the punishment? How are they going to deal with murder? It's not just death, but it's murder that they're framing as suicide. I mean, it's bad upon bad. It's evil upon evil. And we're expecting to see either come up and payment, punishment, penance, whatever, you know, whatever it might be. But we don't get it in this movie because it's ridiculous. That's the ridiculousness of the movie. But still, there's that part of your brain that goes, what the hell? <laughs> this could, they could just never get away with this. Yeah. It's funny. And just the fact, as an investigator, if I saw that someone down drain cleaner to kill themselves, I'd be a little suspicious. I'm like, that's not a good way to go. Oh, right. It's a horrible no. way. It's like, take a gun, hang yourself or something. Pain, you'd think, yeah. yeah, like a painful way to go. And also, the other complaint I have with my favorite scene, that being that, yeah, scene where she, where Heather dies, is uh, Veronica should have known she grabbed the wrong cup from the beginning because JD specifically puts a cover on his mug. He puts a lid on his right. mug, and the glass, the mug that she poured, does not have a lid on it. And she reaches down and grabs the lid. It's like you, you would definitely know you would grabbed the wrong mug. And on top of that, then we see Veronica literally take the wrong mug and walk off screen into, we presume, Heather's room. So in the next shot, we see JD and Veronica in Heather's room and JD is now holding the mug. Right. So we're like, wait a minute, how did the mug now end up in JD's hands all of a sudden when we just saw it in Veronica's hands? And so in the passing of the mug, if Veronica passed it to JD, you would definitely see the blue liquid, the clearly... Blue liquid, which is the drain cleaner, Drano, whatever, in the mug. It's a lot of, you just kind of have to go with it. Yeah, I think the smell would have given it away, too. They should have. Oh, yeah. If he yeah, dumped, it's, if it's like he secretly top. dumped it into the orange juice and. See, that would have been funnier if he, he dumped it into the orange juice and milk. Because then she would have been like, I just gave her orange juice and milk. What the hell? Right. And then, yeah. you know, he really would have just tricked her into like, oh, yeah, write the note. Yeah. You killed her. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Totally. Yeah, exactly. Good point. Yes. So, Jason, you have any other complaints or Swiss cheese? Uh, just quick one here. When Heather corners JD in the boiler room, when he's in the midst of planting the explosives, how did she get his gun? She comes mm -hmm. down the stairs pointing his gun at him. That's a good question. Yeah. She's got the big black revolver. Did I miss something? Is there a deleted scene? How did, when did she take his gun? I could Because it just seemed like out of the blue. Hmm. That is a good one. So viewers out there, if I miss something that I glossed over it while watching it, because I watched, I don't know, I was watching pretty closely, I thought, if there was previous sequence like in a scruff, like uh, in some sort of melee that she kept the gun from a previous scene, I don't know. Well, he goes to her room to kill her mm -hmm. and then explains what he was going to do, thinking that she's dead because she faked hung herself. Did he accidentally leave the gun there? And I do recall when she breaks up with him at his dad's house, at his house, when they're sitting on the couch mm -hmm. and he's trying to explain things to her and throws the gun down onto the... Oh, he shoots the radio. He shoots the radio, which is playing the song, I believe, Teenage Suicide is Bad, Don't Do It, by Big Fun. That's why I keep saying Big Fun. By the way, if you're not familiar with the movie, that's why I keep saying Big Fun. In the fiction, the fictional band that sings the song that is mentioned throughout, the name of the band is Big Fun. But he shoots the radio and then throws his gun down onto the ground. But I don't think she like picks it up and runs off. Now, I'm pretty sure he has it in the bedroom when he goes to kill her. Right, later on, yeah. So unless he left it there... 
Yeah, that's a good question. I'm going to have to watch it again to figure out how she got her hands yeah. on the gun. And the only other thing I had was uh, having Jason Dean stop the timer on the bomb in the boiler room by accidentally stabbing the wiring on a stick of dynamite with his switchblade. It just seemed a little random, kind of weak, weird to me to be that's how the bomb gets or the explosives gets stopped from going off. Okay. It was okay. It mm-hmm. just felt like, oh, that was really lucky that that happened. Maybe it's part of the comedy. Maybe it's just meant to be kind of funny. True. My two minor complaints were JD and Veronica hooking up so quickly. I mean, Veronica just left a party where she was hungover and sick, and now she's going to sleep with JD. I'm like, I, I don't know if she'd be in any kind of condition to do that. I thought. I mean, I, I understand she's angry and probably on adrenaline. She cleaned up real quick. Yeah, yeah she did clean up real quick. And then just the fact where the drain cleaner was found. Uh, that's usually an under the sink product. Just the fact you have yeah, it in a totally. cabinet like that. Oh, do you have the salt? Oh yeah, it's right next to the drain cleaner up there in the cabinet. I thought that was kind of funny. Minor, minor, minor. Yeah, I mean, all things considered, if those are our only complaints, I mean, it's a pretty, pretty tight film. Yeah. Moving on to hey, it's that actor. All right. In this segment, we spotlight a character actor you have seen in many other films, an actor making their big screen debut. Or an actor that makes an uncredited cameo. It's Hey, It's an Actor. Who do we choose this week, Jason? This week, our Hey, It's That Actor is John Engel, the seasoned veteran actor. John Engel, who portrays Principal Gowen, or Gowen, in this film. So I'm going to give you a little backstory, ladies and germs. I waited tables for many years at the Black Cow Cafe in Montrose, California. And over the years... I met many wonderful customers, many of which whom became regulars of mine. Among them was an older couple by the names of John Ingle and his beautiful wife, Grace Lynn Ingle. And this must have been circa 2008 or so, so uh, maybe a little bit before, actually. Um, Regardless, they were the nicest, most generous people in the universe, really. They were friendly. They were conversational. We got to know one another, and we got to know one another's stories. And John then knew I was an actor. And I got to know him as an actor as well. And I'm going to get into some of John Ingalls' credits right now. He is mainly known for portraying the patriarch Edward Quartermain of the Quartermain family on General Hospital for 506 episodes from 1993 to 2012. Uh, since 1981, he'd made several appearances on TV shows such as Dallas, Silver Spoons, Highway to Heaven, Cheers, Gimme a Break, Family Ties, Fame, Mama's Family, The Facts of Life, Golden Girls, Night Court, and the list goes on and on. He was the narrator and voice of uh, Sarah's dad in the Land Before Time series, I believe from the third film on. He was also in RoboCop 2 and Death Becomes Her. He played the doctor in Batman and Robin. And then he also he had taken over the role of Mickey Horton on Days of Our Lives for 79 episodes from 2004 to 2006. He was on a couple episodes of the acclaimed HBO series Big Love and had a small part on Parks and Recreation. So there you go. Uh, long storied career, seasoned veteran in the acting biz, John Engel. And I, along with my fellow waiter and friend, Andy Buckley, uh, got to know John and his wife, Graceling, quite well. You know, he actually got me work as an extra on General Hospital for a year and a half, playing the bartender at the Metro Court Lounge. And uh, they had us, that being John and Graceland, had us over to his house even one day to have us show him our short film that Bill Bant and I and Marwan worked on called Over Cards, 
the really wanted to see our work and he loved the film and shared some kind words. A uh, great guy. But beyond that, yeah, I just also recall him working for Habitat for Humanity all around just a good human being. And as I said, um, he always wanted to know what we were doing and how we were and simply put, they were both incredible people. By the way, Grace Lynn herself was a world-renowned soprano singer and protege of Igor Stravinsky or Igor Stravinsky. So both Grace Lynn and John passed away in 2012 within about seven months of one another, actually. There's kind of a romantic nature about that in itself, but uh, I miss them to this day. They were special people and it's uh, an honor to have known them both. So uh, it's fun because he does play, he's great in this, is playing the principal. He has a couple of short scenes, uh, a couple of lines uh, he has are uh, when Pauline, the, the one that's doing like the love-in and trying to get everybody to rally around these uh, supposed teenage suicides, she says, uh, look, I suggest that we get everybody together, both students and teachers in the cafeteria and just talk and feel together. And then Principal Gowan says, thank you, Miss Fleming. You call me when the shuttle lands. Just great line. And later on in another scene, in the boardroom, he says, uh, shut up, Paul. Now I've seen a lot of bullshit. Angel dust, switchblades, sexually perverse photography exhibits involving tennis rackets. But this suicide thing, guess that's more on Pauline's wavelength. Great lines, great delivery by the one and only John Engel. So there you have it. This week's Hey, It's That Actor is John Engel. Yeah, good call. I didn't even put that together, that that was him from uh, General Hospital. Not that I'm a General Hospital watcher. My wife is still to this day. I was about to say. That's right. But yeah, I couldn't remember that one line he had to Pauline, so I'm glad that you brought that one up. And then um, he kind of has a funny bit when he's like, there's no way I can dismiss the school before lunch. You know how many phone calls we would get in the office? And he asks, oh, was by the way, was that was that Heather that passed away? Was she a cheerleader? I'm like, no. He's like, <laughs> right. oh, we could have we done a half day if it was a cheerleader. Man, tough stuff. No, good call <laughs> on that one. Yeah, John Engel, great guy. Graceland, wonderful woman. They were a beautiful couple, and they adored one another and were so outgoing and giving and warm and kind. Fond memories of them both. Yeah, and I do remember you telling me that story that you took him to show our film. So that was cool. Yeah. All right, moving right along to facts and trivia. What are some facts and trivia we have about Heather's? All right, so... Daniel Waters began writing the screenplay in the spring of 1986 while he was working at a video store. Waters wanted the film to be directed by Stanley Kubrick from a perception that Kubrick, this is quoting Waters, Kubrick was the only person that could get away with a three-hour film. I guess the script originally was maybe three hours? I don't know. After a number of failed attempts to get the script to Kubrick, Waters approached director Michael Lehman, who he met through a mutual friend. Lehman agreed to helm the film with producer Denise Denovi. Imagine Stanley Kubrick doing Heathers. That every time I read that, that just blew my mind. Aim high, yeah, right. Why not? Give it a shot. You never know. Stranger things have happened. Oh, another Stranger Things reference. Uh, but yeah, he had said, and I, I was, I'm reading this. I guess Daniel Waters had said the cafeteria scene near the start of Heathers was written as a homage, homage to the barracks scene, which opens Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket. Oh, okay, makes sense. So principal photography took place over 33 days, beginning in July 1988. Although set in Ohio, filming was done entirely in Los Angeles. Three different schools were used as the setting for Westerberg High School, uh, Corvallis High School, uh, now Bridge Academy in Studio City, Vertigo Hills High School in Tohunga, 
and John Adams Middle School in Santa Monica. The funeral scenes were filmed at Church of the Angels in Pasadena, California. I'm going to have to keep an eye out for some of those. I, some of those locations I'm familiar with. I've spent a lot of time in most of those areas, for sure. In the original version of the script, J.D. successfully blows up Westerberg High. I know you were going to touch on this. I'll just start it off here, I suppose. Yeah, so that was the original ending in the script, and the final scene would feature a surreal prom gathering of all the students in heaven. But executives at New World Pictures agreed to, when they agreed to finance the film, they disliked the dark ending and insisted that it be changed. Uh, so for the alternative endings, like you said, JD blows up the school and then the prom would take place in heaven. And uh, supposedly everybody in heaven would be drinking the blue punch. And uh, they had uh, Martha singing in the background. Um, another alternate ending involved Martha pulling out a knife and stabbing Veronica and shouting, fuck you, Heather. Meanwhile, Veronica, with a knife in her stomach, was supposed to laugh. My name is not Heather. My name's not Heather. The movie would end with Martha standing up from her wheelchair and walking off. And then in another ending, Veronica killed JD in the boiler room and then blew herself up instead. Wow, all really lighthearted, feel-good endings. Oh, yes. Everyone. All for those. Getting artists to lend their work to this project proved to be quite difficult because of the subject's matter. Originally, the book that suicidal students supposedly underlined meaningful passages from was The Catcher in the Rye. The producers could not get permission from J.D. Salinger to use the book. It was then changed to Moby Dick because Herman Melville's works are in the public domain. Also in the film, there's two versions of K. Sarah Sarah, the first sung by singer Sid Straw, and another over the end credits by Sly and the Family Stone. The filmmakers wanted to use the original Doris Day version of the song, but Day would not lend her name to any project using profanity. And then also the role of Heather McNamara was originally offered to 17-year-old Heather Graham, but Heather's parents refused to let her take the role because of the dark subject matter. There you go. I love it. I'm going to rattle off yeah, a few here myself. Uh, Winona Ryder's agent begged her not to be in the movie, stating her career would be over. Oops, fire that agent. Brad Pitt auditioned for the role of JD. How about that? He was rejected because he was considered too nice. Brad Pitt would later star with Christian Slater in Interview with the Vampire and True Romance. And it was Tori Spelling, who had seen Shannon Doherty in this film, who recommended to her father Aaron Spelling that Shannon be cast in his new show about high school, Beverly Hills 90210. Ever heard of it? The Brad Pitt would have been interesting. Yeah, I mean, he can definitely play cool. Yeah. Probably too pretty, though. Sucks to be pretty. Yeah, I know. What a curse for Brad Pitt. God. Well, I think it turned out for him okay in the long run. He's done all right. Yeah, he's done okay. All right, let's move on to box office. So Heather's was released on March 31st, 1989 in 35 theaters. On an estimated budget of $3 million, it grossed around $1 million domestically. It went number 11 at the box office, never making it into the top 10. On a positive note, though, its per-screen average on its opening week was higher than the top 10 movies that week, which included Rain Man, Lean on Me, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, and Dangerous Liaisons. 
Moving on to reviews, Heather's was not featured on Cisco and Ebert, but Roger did give it two and a half stars out of four, stating what sets Heather's apart from less intelligent teenage movies is that it has a point of view towards this dark subject matter, a bleak, macabre, and bitingly satirical one. Leonard Moulton also gave the movie two and a half stars, stating outrageous black humor works at first, but isn't sustained. Even script goes far astray. Ryder gives a terrific performance, and Slater is commanding. Rotten Tomatoes gives it a tomato meter score of 93%, and has an IMDb rating of 7.2. That brings us to additional thoughts and questions. What are some additional thoughts and questions we have about Heathers? Here's a quick one, Bill Bant. Have you ever heard of Snappy Snack Shack? No, I think that's fictional. I have so much fun saying it. I was hoping it would be a real thing. Maybe it was in different parts of the country. That's another one I should put under uh, fun facts because 7-Eleven, I think, was supposed to be in the script and they wouldn't license their mm-hmm. their namesake for the film. People read that script and goes, what are you guys doing? Yeah. They got it done. Oh, yeah. I just wish, yeah, there was an actual snappy snack shack. Yeah. Because it's so much fun to say. Here's a question. I think I've answered some of the questions I've had, actually, when I thought about this film earlier because I was going to ask you a bunch of questions about Jason Dean and his intentions, was he intent on killing from the start? Had he had done it before? And I think the answers are yes and yes. <laughs> but yeah, uh, I think I agree. So I don't think those are great questions. But here's one, if you'd like to think about it, is does Veronica have any personal repercussions for having shot Kurt Kelly? I mean, she does commit murder. Unintentionally, she's an accomplice during Heather's murder in the beginning, but then she does shoot Kurt Kelly and do we assume that she just had got been gets away with it and has to deal with her own conscience regarding it? I agree with the latter. I think she does get away with it, but she'll live with that guilt forever. There is a good moment in the funeral scene when she starts giggling about something that JD says. And one of the, the younger sisters of Kurt or Ram turns and you can see crying. And then she realizes, ooh, that's... Not funny. Yeah, I just took away someone's older brother. Yeah, it would be something to be very tough to live with for the rest of your life. I didn't mean want to be like Debbie Downer here. Yeah, I know. But but it was something I was thinking about. It's like, because there's, you know, it's it's hard sometimes to separate yourself from the serious subject matter and realize it's a comedy. Because, yeah, at the end, you're just like, okay, she's kind of been hardened by this experience. And now she's this tough girl kind of taking over the Heathers and she's going to change the ways of the Heathers and she's going to be a, a good person. And she, you know, goes back to repair relations with Martha Dunstock, et cetera. So that's all fine and great, but she's still a murderer. <laughs> Correct. It's like, oh, I can't forget that. Yeah, I'm wondering how that would be presented. Like, say say they realize that she got, she shot him and goes to court. Like, she didn't think she was actually killing him. That's a good point. You're, you know what her, she, if she has yeah, a good lawyer. Her intent, her intent was not to kill. That's true. Absolutely. She still does some time, maybe to a lesser degree, involuntary manslaughter, maybe something like that. What did JD tell her the bullets, what kind of bullets they were? There was a specific name, a goofy name. Oh, yeah, some German German name for it. I think it was German for lies or something. Because mm-hmm. hence, yeah, why he asked her if she knows German. But yeah, I think they're just supposed to pierce the skin and then kind of almost like a trank dart, but it's it looks like a bullet. That's, I think, how he kind of explained it. Mm-hmm. But she kicks herself later on for having believed it, of course. Oh, yeah. Oh, 
Blinded by love. I've got a couple other questions. How about you, Bill Bant? What do you got? Well, you already mentioned this because uh, I was I was going to ask you this, so, but maybe you can ask the, the second half of my question. Because I've never played croquet before. I have no idea what the rules are. Is there any way you can explain it? Like, really? No, you don't know either. But you've played it. <laughs> I've forgotten. It. It's been so long, but I have played it. And again, you know, I watched this film probably one and a half or so times. And I was thinking about it because clearly there are options. You want to, I think you have a number, number of strikes on the ball to get it through the hoop or hoops, the croquet hoops that are stuck into the ground. And I believe, you know, you obviously get points for that, I think, or there's a goal. I, geez, I'm terrible. I don't know. I don't know, but you can knock other players out and then you have, you either have the choice of taking two shots or knocking the play other player out according right. to the I'm gonna, I'm gonna I'm gonna look this up and link it in the show notes I'm yeah there we go now. it's funny because I looked up I just want to make sure I was even saying croquet at first it's been so long I, I was like do people call it croquette or is it, it really is it croquet? I think croquette's like a food yeah it is it, or coquette yeah I, I'm just kicking myself because I looked it up on Wikipedia and then didn't read it through to re-educate myself on the rules of the game great question yeah that was my question go ahead what do you got for me All right, Bill. Well, we had said which crashing through a glass table scene is better. No Way Out or Heathers? I think I'm going to have to go No Way Out. You're you're coming off the balcony. It's the distance. Yeah, it's the distance. Yeah, it makes the difference. It's from going from that, the upper staircase there, upper Mm -hmm. level of the home all the way down. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah, this one's pretty jarring in this film as well. And then uh, here's my other comparison question for you. Which line is better or quote is better Okay, from Heather's JD's line. Our love is God. Let's go get a slushy or from Pulp Fiction. I'm hungry. Let's get a taco. I'm going to go with the slushy. (laughs) You like the slushy? Yes. I laughed out loud when he said it. It's a great line. And it just, just heart, you know, made me think of uh, let's get a taco from Pulp Fiction, which of course is, you know, Harvey Keitel's great delivery after such a, Tremendously violent and failed heist sequence. Equally great deliveries, equally great actors. And although someone might debate that between Christian Slater and Harvey Keitel, but Slater's great in this. And uh, yeah, let's go get a slushy. I don't know. I like slushy. I just like the word slushy. Yes. So I might, might give it that the edge as well. But then there's the one last obvious question, Bill Bant. Okay. Big fun, Bill Bant. It's the lunchtime poll. You inherit $5 million. The same day aliens land on the earth and say they're going to blow it up in two days. What do you do? We're just going to throw a huge party. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what, what can you do at that point? Limited time. I agree, my friend. It's all about big fun. It's all about uh, getting as many family and friends gathered together in a short period of time and spending that money on fun goods that would create the most comfortable atmosphere possible in order to have a good time and have some great laughs with, again, with uh, yeah, friends and, and Screw ones. the taxes. Screw the IRS. I'm spending it all. I'm taking all five. You're not getting your cut ah, on this party. Great, man. It's all going towards the party. We'll have a banger. I love it. Anything else from you, Bill Bant? Yeah, just another little fun fact here. When discussing the Lost Boys a couple of weeks ago, I talked about how many times they said the word Michael in that movie, which was 118 times. So you would think with Heathers, you have three main characters with the name Heather that must eclipse the Michael in Lost Boys. Nope. Heather is only said 90 times. 90 times. Compared to Michael in Lost Boys, which is just one character, 
said 118 times. I still don't recommend doing a Heather's drinking game. That's still kind of dangerous. So just like what I said with Lost Boys, yeah, don't do it with Heather's either. (laughs) All right. Ratings time. So on a scale of one to five red scrunchies, what do you give Heather's, Jason? I'm giving it three and a half scrunchies, man. Real solid three and a half. I like this movie a lot. At times, I even love it. The black satire works. Winona's adorable. Slater is undeniable. Daniel Waters, the writer, basically invented another way of speaking. I mean, some of which still endures to this day. And this movie is still quoted to this day as a result. The film, for me, succeeds in going big and going over the top and taking the high school coming of age movie tropes to the next level and jest. It's raw. It's wrong. It's irreverent. It's rebellious. And it's funny. And here comes the butt. I once again do have to present the caveat that the film was made in 1988 and the political and social culture was different back then and much of the film's content does not fare well in today's climate. And uh, we have to be sensitive to that, mainly in regards to, uh, again, bullying, violence, suicide, I mean, uh, gun violence in particular, and of course all violence, uh, but suicide, etc. So my advice is to share uh, this film and watch it responsibly. <laughs> Try to understand what the movie is. First of all, it's a movie. It is fiction, and also it's a dark comedy. Let's try to leave it at that. And again, I, I like this movie. I appreciate the risks it takes from a filmmaking perspective that they took a chance and they made it work, especially at, at that time. So I, I do have an appreciation for it. Three and a half scrunchies for me. Yeah, I did the same thing. I gave it three and a half. Um, it was kind of hard because I was like, am I trying to grade it in the context of when I first saw it then or in the context now. So I think I kind of went in between. Mm-hmm. I mean, the lines in this movie are just great. Just to, just to kind of go through the script, just to pull these uh, winners out. Christian Slater and Winona Ryder, incredible performances in it. But yeah, the context of the movie today doesn't quite fit. So if you have never seen this movie before, it's, it's the same thing. Uh, kind of watch it with a little caution and just realize things were way different back then than they are now. Not that school violence didn't happen back then, but not right. in, in the degree and the way it's reported nowadays. I'm sure things will turn back around and maybe 20 years from now, there will be some kind of remake of this. I know, you know they did a musical and they tried to do a TV version. It was like two girls and a, a guy that were the Heathers. A lot different trying to bring it into modern times, but still good watch. Still made me laugh a little bit. Uh, some of it uneasy and like, oh, should I be laughing at this stuff? But hey, I still did. Sorry. That's the age I grew up and that's where my humor comes from. So yeah, three and a half for me. I think that about wraps it up for this week's episode. As always, thank you so much for spending your time with us and listening. Please take the time to follow us on your preferred streaming platform. Give us a review and rate us. If you want to learn more about our show, you can visit us at all80smoviespodcast.com. For our next episode, we continue our back-to-back-to-school series with our second episode being one of the top high school movies of all time. 1982 classic Fast Times at Ridgemont High, starring Sean Penn, Jennifer Jason Lee, Judge Reinhold, and Katie Cates. Hope you can join us. Have an excellent week, everyone. Seriously, people are going to look at the ashes of Westerberg and say, now there is a school that's self-destructive, not because society didn't care, but because the school was society. It's pretty deep, huh? Thanks for staying up with us. Good night, world. <laughs>